it's always exciting uh, to be giving a Dharma talk, no matter how many times you've done it and how many times you've talked about the Four Noble Truths. And I remembered that um, sometime in the last couple of years when we were um, having the capital campaign to build this beautiful building and to finish this retreat center, there was a... uh, a wonderful dinner party that some supporters of Spirit Rock gave in San Francisco in a very wonderful and elegant locale. And uh, people came who were interested and able to support this project. We had a beautiful dinner, and um, I was there, and uh, Jack was there, and Joseph Goldstein was there. And we were each asked to give a Dharma talk at the end of dinner. And uh, we had 15 minutes each for Dharma talk, which is a little bit hard for all of us because, as you know, there's no constraints here. You know, we come from traditions where people taught all night long, so to get it down to an hour is already, you know, a challenge. And we first get started after, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, so 15 minutes was really a challenge. And they were very serious about it. They said, okay, you're going to get up first. You can talk about this, and you talk about and then you'll finish in 15 minutes. You'll get up next one, next one. And we did. We were, we were perfect. We did it in 15 minutes, and we said three different topics, probably mindfulness and metta and where are we going or something like that. I mean, it seems like the reasonable things to talk about. But um, at the end, uh, someone got up um, who's uh, actually a, a performer, an entertainer, of, and well-known to all of us, a good friend of Spirit Rock. And she said, you know, I'm often the speaker at... Uh, Uh, dinner events and sometimes at events like this she said and uh, one tries to have a speaker at these kinds of events who is very entertaining she said and I realized tonight that there's nothing quite as satisfying and entertaining as a dharma talk it's not as funny as you know sometimes people are doesn't require musical talent we don't sing songs she said but there's nothing as satisfying as hearing dharma and I was just thinking about that as we're sitting here, because it's, it's always a thrill to talk about, because there's nothing as satisfying as telling the truth about things, including the truth that peace is possible. You know, I thought about, well, this is how I imagined I'd start, but neither was the other story, so. I, I, had, a, I, had, a, I had a thought today about, um, I was, I am going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, but <laughs> I... I I was going to start with the first of them, and I'll come back to it in a minute. But I thought to myself, you know how when you go into a multiplex movie theater these days, and over all of these doors, it says in flashing lights what's going on in that movie theater. Like, this is here, and that's there. Prince of Egypt is here. This is there. That's there. Life is beautiful. We should have like a flashing light over the front of the meditation hall that says peace is possible. I mean, it's okay. It is the movie that we're showing here. That is what the Buddha taught. It is the central teaching of what the Buddha taught. And it would be so uplifting for the spirit because I know from being with you all day long that in a way that's totally expectable and in a way that makes me feel very reassured about this practice, everybody's working hard. 
Nobody I met today said I'm in complete bliss because it, the road from here to there is complicated. But everybody's working and everybody's stuff has predictably come up. It's supposed to. That's why we sort of lower, level the playing field and support you so that everybody's stuff will come up and so the heart will heal, which is really the business that we're about. We really are about unraveling the knots in the heart and changing the habits of the mind. And when we do, and as we do, and every moment that we're awake and present, as we approach that time when we'll be a little bit more unraveled and a little bit less habituated, every moment of mindfulness is already a moment of freedom and liberation and peace. It's not possible at a distant time only. It is possible now. All of you have already felt it here. No matter what else is happening for you, in one moment of looking out the window and seeing the rain and stopping the story, you are free. In that moment, your life is the same, your story is the same, but in that moment, the torment was gone. One moment of tasting the tea and being completely there. One moment of taking a step. It's not only possible, it's a reality, and it's an experience that we all have. Where I was going to start was with a comment that somebody made this afternoon when they came in for their uh, interview. Can relax, you know, I'm not going to tell who it was. Or I will never tell a story about you that I didn't ask, could I? But I might tell something that you said and not identify you. But somebody was talking about... Because we could have, any of us, said this about discovering. That's actually a person in a good place in their life at this point. You know, sometimes we're in a difficult place. Sometimes there's real uh, troubles in life with one's own body, someone else's, with relationship, with the events of life. But this person was saying, "My life at this point is in a good place." But still, there's all these old stuff that comes up, pain in the heart that comes up, the struggles that come up. I went on to say, I'm beginning to think also, this is a little bit of a crisis of faith, because she said, uh, I had the hope that it wasn't going to turn out to be so hard, life. Life is hard, she said. I said, it is. She said, I'm getting it that nothing's going to make it not hard, right? (laughs) I said, right. (laughs) But, and I thought to myself as she said it, the Buddha said it somewhat more formally in the first noble (laughs) truth about life as dukkha, which we sometimes translate as suffering or... uh, unsatisfactory. Sometimes sometimes we tone it down a little bit. I've heard people say uh, challenging or <laughs> difficult. You know, it's maybe all of the above are what's true, but fundamentally it's extremely hard to be in a life, in a body, in relationships. Um, they cannot stay comfortable. It's the nature of bodies and lives and relationships. They are subject to change. And we really spend a whole life readjusting ourselves so that we're managing. 
It doesn't, it's actually not so bleak, you know, sometimes. Um, I had an interesting experience. I used to teach, um, I used to teach uh, from time to time at Dominican College uh, when um, every few years their uh, religion teacher would go on sabbatical and I would get to teach a, an introductory semester of uh, Eastern religions. And I teach Buddhism and uh, it's an interesting population here in Marin County because the people in the class were mostly 18 years old and mostly people who had grown up in Marin County. So mostly their life had not had a lot of strife and pain in them, relative affluence. Most of them came from Catholic families that stayed together and took good care of them. It wasn't true of all of them, but by and large, they were people who had not had a lot of pain on the level of life pain. And so here I come with the first double truth, life is unsatisfactory. And that's not been their experience. Mostly it's been pretty satisfactory. So they, they had kind of a puzzled look, you know, when I said that. They, you know, when I say that to you, life is inevitably difficult. Everybody gets that. Nobody questions that. You know, if I said who anybody here thinks that's not true, you know, we all think it. We all know it. But I could tell that. It's kind of their foreheads would rumble. They were worried about that. Like, it was bad news that I was bringing to them. And what's more, that we make it worse with preferences, that we would rather have it one way or the other way, and that our struggling with the preferences, well, made perfect sense to them. They had preferences as well, and the idea of overcoming their preference, preference seems to them like a normal thing to have, Yeah. <clears throat> it's very hard for them to understand the concept of disappointment. As a matter of fact, um, I would hurry on to the third noble truth because I was had such a bad feeling about them not liking me, and I like the people to like me. So I didn't want to be the bearer of bad tidings. They would ask me things. They would say, "Do, do Buddhists have birthday parties?" You know, that, that this is a very grim religion. And I'd, I'd hurry to say, listen, it's not grim, it's true. It's true, it's not grim. That's just the way it is. Actually, it's the other way. It's true that life is extremely difficult. And, you know, I'd have to resort to things like, did any of you ever have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and then that person stopped liking you? Oh, yeah, that they could maybe relate to a little bit. That was a thing that they mostly knew, but that was it, you know. It's hard, though, to recognize the truth. Even today, here's a person who's a grown-up, who's had a fair amount of difficulty in life, and her life at this point is not in a bad place. But it's hard to really look at life and say, you know what? Nothing makes it not hard. It's always hard. You know, it doesn't mean it's not doable. It doesn't mean we can't do it. it. doesn't mean we cannot open to it with a heart of wisdom and compassion. In fact, that's the good news. And in fact, when we see how hard it is to get it right on the outside and right on the inside, and how much we struggle, especially when our stuff is right on the outside and we can't get the inside right, and we realize my story is not unique, everybody has this, then we really are transformed into people who take care of each other and forgive each other for being whatever it is that we are. We forgive the world for being what it is. We take better care about fixing it up and being kind to it. And it's actually from looking at how difficult it is. 
So I was thinking about that person's remark, nothing is going to make it not hard, right? Now thinking that the Buddha said the same thing. He said, it's inevitably difficult, challenging, unsatisfactory. Who knows what actually dukkha means, you know, since we don't speak Pali. Not sure of the nuance of that word. I like unsatisfactory as a as a word because it doesn't mean that life is inherently even unpleasant. It's just what it is. Sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's not pleasant. It's insubstantial in the sense that nothing stays. And so there's no place of permanent rest and contentment except a heart of contentment. That's the place that's ultimately the only refuge. And that, of course, is always subject to challenge. So my grandfather used to say, another piece of vernacular wisdom, you have to know that he always said this phrase, following a very long sigh. So you could see that this is now a philosophical (laughs) remark that he was going to make. And he would take a long sigh and sigh, and then he would say, it's very hard to be a person. It's extremely hard. What he meant by that, so I'm now translating from another language, is it's very hard to be a decent person. It's very hard to have the right kind response. It's hard not to get confused and behave impulsively and behave out of lust or out of aversion, which is really what we do when we struggle with things, when we confuse ourselves with needing to have it a way that it can't be or that it isn't. It's another way of saying the second noble truth about the cause of suffering is craving, thirst. I don't actually, sometimes I wonder how it would be if we actually knew how to speak Pali, because cause sounds like something happens and then that's the result. I think that craving is suffering, doesn't lead to, it is itself suffering needing so much to act on something to make ourselves comfortable, to take something we need or to get rid of something we need. To do that out of a confusion is to create so much more suffering in our own minds around us. So I like to think about the third noble truth, that peace is possible. Upandita, the name of the book by Upandita is In This Very Life. I like that. In this very life, in this very moment, in this very day, we could really experience that peace that is the possibility of saying, my life is my life, this is what's happening, and here I am, here I am. Including, I'm pleased about what's happening or I'm not pleased about what's happening, but I'm okay. Here I am. I'm okay. This moment I can take this breath. This moment I can drink this tea. This moment I can look at the rain. This moment I am not in a tension with my life. I'm not mad at it, not belligerent, I'm not demanding I'm thinking about all the book titles, Upanditas in this very life. My friend Sharon Salzberg wrote a book, A Heart as Wide as the World. I love that title because it speaks to me about that place of equanimity in the heart where you're able to forgive your life, 
not like it, not not wish it were different, but to be able to say, you know, this is what happened. This is where I am. Here I am. That's how it is. And to not be in contest with it. One of the stories that I really like to tell a lot, because it so taught me that lesson, was a tiny event that happened years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, more likely. I was sitting at a retreat in uh, Santa Rosa at Angelo Center. And um, Bill Kwong came to visit. Bill Kwong is the Roshi of uh, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center up in Sonoma County. And he came for one afternoon, and he was an honored guest for the afternoon. He sat up in front. He led us sitting. And then afterwards, uh, he was invited to give a Dharma talk. And he said, well, I don't usually like to give talks, but I'll do questions and answers. And so people ask questions and answers, and people ask Zen questions, because Kwang Roshi is a Zen teacher. So people ask questions about what is Kensho and... How do you work with koans, or do you, and the kind of Zen-like questions. And uh, then somebody said, well, somebody raised their hand, and he called on them, and they said, um, I heard you had cancer, how was that? And he had, and we all knew it, and that he was at that point apparently recovered, but that he had had cancer and that he had had treatment for it and that was worrisome. So someone said, I heard you had cancer, how was it? And he sat there for a minute and just for a minute I wanted very much for him to have the right answer. And he did. He said, it was terrible. It was really terrible. I've just... That's the right answer. Just a momentary flicker of, but it's terrible is what it was. Any notion that I ever had about what might happen from practice, which might include that I would sail over the events of my life in an unperturbed uh, ozone of bliss or something, and it would all be all right with me, I don't really think that's what happens. I think we get to be able to tell ourselves the truth and discover that we can be with it and that it changes us and it changes us to compassionate and forgiving and kind and patient and honest and loving and intimate and available and all the things that we want to be, not out of this world somewhere, in it. with really kindness and compassion. I remember when I, this is back in the 60s and early 70s when everybody was trying to alter their consciousness one way or another. I uh, remember going to a party and uh, right here in Marin County and in the middle of the party, you know, people milling around doing little party things, talking, visiting, eating, whatever. There was someone sitting, a, a woman sitting in kind of what we take as a meditative pose with eyes closed, right in the middle of all this, you know, (laughs) stuff going on. 
And someone said, uh, they whispered to me, they said, you see so-and-so over there? She's enlightened. <laughs> and I, I really, I thought to myself, because I was just starting to get interested in meditation, I thought to myself, if that's it, I don't want it. You know, but, uh, Subsequently, I also thought that enlightenment or what I was doing had something to do, you have to again remember this was the 60s and 70s, with radically altered mind states. I, I kind of thought that since I noticed that the shift was away from psychedelic drugs to meditation, I made the internal decision that what I was meant to do with meditation was to recreate a kind of psychedelic 4th of July experience in the mind (laughs) without drugs. Um, Now the truth is that sometimes, especially if you do uh, lots of retreat practice and if that's kind of the nature of your mind and body physiology, sometimes some very extraordinary things happen and some very amazing 4th of July even like experience happens. But that's not it, you know. And actually, that that kind of it is often quite um, an alluring detour. You can forget that that's not it and get involved in that. It's an interesting it's an interesting event, but it's not wisdom necessarily. Any kind of an event can be the cause for the arising of wisdom, but the event is just the event, and how we relate to it is really the place that wisdom lives. So Bill Kwong's response was wonderful because I think, for me it was wonderful, because I think it was another form of peace as possible. can stand it. can tell the truth about your life, including that you don't like it. And continue. Be here. Be up for your life. Be in it. Be available. Be available for the benefit of others as he was in that moment. That one phrase just so moved me in terms of being paradigmatic about what we're doing. So it's not that easy to accommodate to just what is. That's actually what is the stuff that most of us are working with while we're here. To accommodate with the truth of the body as we hear day by day, get sleepy, tired, hungry, it aches, it doesn't ache, we're sitting still, it's raining a lot. And then the truth of our lives, which starts to present itself just as soon as we sit down. Sometimes people have the thought, you know, I really came here, I thought I was going to calm down and get nice and quiet. And as soon as I got nice and quiet, here came all this stuff. It's not an accident. Actually, that's why here came all the stuff. I have this image that um, the stuff that's unresolved in our life, the knots in our mind and our body, uh, wait kind of online for us to give them a space to present themselves. And that what we've done here is set up the conditions for them to present themselves. I used to imagine... After a while, when I got to be doing lots of retreats, I gave up any idea that I knew what I was going to work on when I got there. You know, sometimes I'd have the feeling, well, good, I'm going away for a week or 10 days or however long. I'll be able to really work on whatever. 
soon it became clear to me that I had no idea what was going to be up for working on. I had no idea what would happen. It happens all the time in, in interviews. People come in and say, if I had been here an hour ago, the story I would have told you was, and this was happening for me then. But since then, that completely unraveled. I see that clearly, but I'm completely tied up in this other thing that's happened in the last hour. Because that's what happens. Come here, and one thing happens, and then another thing happens, and another thing happens. So somebody was talking about fretting mind, and they said, uh, they quoted Mark Twain, I think, who said, uh, the most terrible things in my whole life that happened to me never happened. That looking back on his life, that he had worried about a lot of things. I think, actually, I thought about it later, and I thought for a lot of people, the most terrible things that happened to them in their life actually happened. Both ways. People who fret and uh, worry about what might happen feel badly about the fact that their life is so difficult. It's an embarrassing hindrance. The people who feel really badly because some terrible things have happened to them also feel estranged from their lives in the world because there's nobody actually who knows how badly they feel, has a sense of terrible pain. Unless we come to a place where we acknowledge really the truth of suffering, one of the reasons that I think that I uh, immediately knew when I came to my first retreat that this was a practice that I would be in for the rest of my life is that the very first day they taught about suffering. And it was such a relief to have people name it, that really life is suffering. Not because I was doing it wrong, or that anybody else was doing it wrong, but that it's really hard to be in a life. That very difficult things either happen to us, or are happening to us, or will happen to us. But there isn't any other way about it. That's really true. There isn't any way out but forward. And so the great news that peace is possible is really a wonderful, exciting. It was a, it, I felt so good about that possibility before I even had any sense that there would be a possibility of me working with my mind or my heart. Before I understood anything really about uh, the instructions and what they're meant to do before I could sit still for one minute. I was so excited and so relieved by that possibility. I looked at my teachers now. um, Most of them my teaching colleagues and my friends. And I thought, never have I heard people speak so straightforwardly about suffering who seemed so happy. And they... They didn't say that. I mean, they didn't say, here I am, happy. But I knew about them from looking at them that they had an idea about something that I was just now hearing about, and I wanted to have that idea. And so the fourth of those Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught is the path of practice 
And generally speaking, when people teach the fourth noble truth, the path of practice, they teach the Eightfold Path. It's what really is written in the, in the sermon in which the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. The fourth of them is a way of life, and it includes really the, the cognitive ways of understanding the truth of suffering, the aspiration to really come to that end of suffering. It includes the three path parts that have to do with how we behave in the world and we really reminded ourselves of uh, those path parts when we took uh, um, precepts on the first night about how to live in a way that creates safety in and around oneself and in the community because it creates a peacefulness in the heart. And the three path parts that have to do with paying attention, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I wanted to talk about a path tonight (coughs) in a slightly different way. That's a path of practice, and that's really the instructions for the path, the techniques of the path. It's a certain way in which all of the techniques that we have here, the technique of being with the breath, of being with the body, or walking slowly, or not talking, or eating slowly, are really all variations of the same technique. We are trying to stop the story that most of us are telling ourselves all the time. We tell ourselves a story that's a commentary on our experience. There's a line from Joyce where he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. I think that we live a short distance from our life experience, mostly because we're afraid to live in the middle of it. We're estranged from the middle of it think we can't stand it if we're in the middle of it. And that really what we're doing here, by telling ourselves moment to moment the truth, I'm putting my foot down, I'm putting my foot down, I feel pressure, I feel pressure, I feel lightness, I feel heaviness, I feel this, I feel this, all of a sudden, the story is stopping, and at the same time, saying this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, and everything else that's also true presents itself. It's not a random technique that we've thought up. It's not an outward bound of the mind. It's really a very wonderful practice setup of techniques that help us to stop all of the diversions that we have from being here to know the truth of our experience so that we'll be able to heal it by discovering that we can be present to it, that we can open to it, that the heart has much wider parameters than perhaps we imagined or experienced. Somebody said at um, a retreat that I was teaching at last week, somebody was quoting, I think it was Mark Twain, talking about um, fretting mind. So many people really have difficulty with fretting mind and spend a lot of time worrying about what if this, what if that. I'm particularly moved by that since it, uh, in, the, in the array of hindrances, which Maria will talk about tomorrow, uh, fretting is one of the five varieties of disturbed, complicated mind states, and uh, certainly the one that I feel most familiar with because of my own, whatever, the, the karma of my life is to... Uh, 
know a lot about fretting. Um, and to really be able to report to people who fret with tremendous empathy, there is actually hope that uh, it gets better from attention and from kindness. And I thought I would just take a little liberty with the idea of the path and talk about the path in terms of what the terrain looks like out there ahead. Um, I was thinking about, I saw a, a catalog for some you know, send-away clothes catalog from uh, a catalog company called The Territory Ahead. So I thought, it's really good. If uh, I was reading it, it had something about you have to um, get ready for where you're going and in, in this catalog, buy all this appropriate stuff for The Territory Ahead. That would be a good place to start. I'll tell you, you have to keep in mind where you're going. And so when we start, um, and as we have now, four or five days into this adventure of three weeks or six weeks, we have some idea of the terrain so that it's familiar to you, or at least it's expected when you get there. The other reason I thought I would bring it up is... uh, I, there, were, there were two kinds of comments throughout the day and people in interviews about the amount of time that they were staying there. People staying for three weeks and saying, I'm really thinking I should have stayed six. And there were people staying for six weeks who said, I can't believe I've signed up for six weeks. Three now seems interminable. And yeah. So I thought to myself, I was going to tell you, it doesn't matter three weeks or six weeks because it's a whole life. You're not going to get there in three weeks or six weeks. And we're going to keep doing it the whole life, all of us. We're going to get old together doing it because it's the only thing to do, really. This is the path to a peaceful heart every minute, not six weeks from now or three weeks from now or two weeks from Thursday, but always now, always now. And as we begin in this special rarefied way of practice, these are, this is the way the terrain often looks. It may have uh, already become clear to you that just by being quiet, the sense perception apparatus gets a little bit clarified. Aldous Huxley used to call it cleansing the doors of perception. So you probably notice that um, sounds might be a little sharper. Maybe when you see, saw the moon tonight, really got a little hit off it. It was a beautiful moonset in the West, and um, maybe begin to feel the cool or the warm a little bit more. Maybe the trees look a little sharper. I used to realize that uh, my perception had changed when I could smell the food further and further away from the dining room. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, I can smell that oatmeal all the way down the hall. But then I thought to myself, that's not, not enough reason to do this practice. This is too hard of a practice for smelling the oatmeal from far away. It has to do something else. But you do notice that you begin to smell the oatmeal all, all the way down the hall. So the senses get a little bit clarified. You might notice, actually, that you get a little bit calmer after a while. Just in general, equanimity level goes up a little bit for most everybody so that we don't startle quite so much. You might notice that your startle reflex gets a little bit relaxed. What happens then 
is by and large for most people the stuff of your life, what's going on right now, the dramas that you just left. You actually didn't leave. They come with you. You know, the stuff that was on your desk and the stuff of your relationship. The more you you stay here, the further away it is and it's less compelling. Especially if you stay away from it. I really would like to remind you to, as much as you can, do this as a renunciate. I mean, again, this is a lovely monastery to be a renunciate in. But really, if you can not have any contact with anybody outside of yourself, here or out in the world, really, the further away you come from it, the more the mind settles down. So those stories circulate around a little bit, and after a while they quieten down. Then I think what happens is the stories of our lives that weren't maybe what we were doing last week, but um, what my teachers years ago used to call the ten top tunes of the experience. I don't actually notice, I never discovered that I had ten. I had two or three stories of my life that seemed compelling. And the nearer they were and the harder they were, the more compelling they were. Sometimes they came in the form of memories. and Sometimes I f- would feel for some period of time just tremendous knots in the body. What happens as we are able to be with our experience moment to moment, day after day, without analyzing it, without figuring it out, but without being afraid of it, and without being angry at it, being present for it, things get a little bit more spacious and a little bit more manageable. We get to be able to rest with our life. We get to be able to say more and more to ourselves, this is the truth of my experience then or now. This is always my truth of my experience now. This is what's happening. I'm remembering this. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this. And I'm here. And I'm here. And now I'm taking a breath. And now I'm taking a breath. And there's two ways, really, in which I think we are healed. And we're doing both of them. We are healed by telling the truth. This is radical truth-telling. Resting in the truth. And then by two particular things that happen as a result of our practice. One of them is we are healed through insight, and the other is we are healed through concentration. They work really together in tandem with each other. As we practice day by day, as we pay attention with awareness every single moment, our concentration deepens. Concentration deepens, we are able to pay attention moment to moment more. When we pay attention moment to moment more, we begin to see the ways in which our stories loop around and around and around. And the ones that are compelling, the ones that cause us pain, begin to either loosen a little bit or we see a way out of the pain. Maybe we have an anger at something. The anger is causing a lot of pain. And maybe we even know I would feel better, I'd be really relieved if I could let go of this anger, but I can't. At some point, paying attention, paying attention, not paying attention to the story of the anger, but paying attention to the pain of the anger, 
at some point, suddenly, things change, they get different. Get a wider understanding. Doesn't mean that we like what happened, that we approve of what happened. It's really an understanding of things couldn't have been another way, or this is the way they were because of all the karma for forever and ever that made that situation. Once I, uh, I think I learned that for the first time, it's a long time ago, I was sitting for some period of time in Barry, and just before I sat, I, uh, there was in the news uh, coverage of a couple who decided not to treat their child who had leukemia with the medical treatment for childhood leukemia which at this point is quite well developed and not very many, it's a very good treatment. Lots of children used to die from childhood leukemia and they don't anymore. And this was back probably in the 1970s and these young folks uh, decided that they wanted to do an alternative medical treatment and it was in the newspapers because the courts were trying to get the right to do it and they were fighting the courts and they won the fight and the child died. And uh, I went to sit. And I was so disturbed by it and very angry at them. And I would sit and at, at, at any time that my mind got quiet and I was feeling peaceful, I would remember what they had done. And I would be so mad at them for having done it. And I would be mad at everything that had anything alternative about it. I was mad at the New Age Journal. I was mad at uh, any kind of alternative health ideas, many of which I lived by and did, and all of a sudden felt very upset with, as if I had made a mistake and now these people had made a mistake. I was so unhappy about my anger. I really prayed that it would go away. I prayed that the thought about what they had done would not come up in my mind because I might be sitting peacefully and then I would suddenly have that thought and my mind and my whole body would contract and I would be so furious. So I was praying that the thought of them and their whole story would not come into my mind. But of course, when you want something not to come into your mind, then it's exactly in your mind all the time. And one time, just in a moment, I think of grace by paying attention and paying attention and paying attention. And here came that same story back. And it was a moment where my mind was a little bit balanced. And all of a sudden, I felt terrible for them. I felt so sad for them. And I actually realized in that moment that, of course, they had done what they did because they loved their child. They thought it was the best thing to do, just like I would do what I thought was the best thing for a child of mine. I think they made a mistake. I think they probably think they made a mistake. And I really felt terrible for them. And I realized that I had not been able to get to that place because the very thought of people doing that was so frightening to me that I had to hold them at a distance. I had to be angry at them because they frightened me. And what I had to happen was I had to sit long enough to calm down long enough to be not frightened long enough, to let the whole story in long enough to be able to see it in all of its clarity. 
And then I really felt terrible for them. And then I really felt very relieved because I wasn't angry anymore. Really what I think happens in this practice, when we can sit still long enough and feel calm enough to hold the truth of our lives, the truth of life around us, in a not angry way, when we can forgive because we're not frightened at looking clearly, then we are free and we're kind and we're compassionate and we're responsive. That comes through concentration, by the way. It's the antidote to antipathy. It has both in it a certain amount of rapture that calms the body and makes it feel happier, and really straightforwardly the component of calm, which makes the body and the mind less agitated. And it allows for the possibility of insight, and the insight is things condition other things. People learn things, people decide things. People make the best judgments that they can given the information that they have. Somebody in the uh, Wednesday morning group down at, uh, that meets here every Wednesday, um, whose name is Gwen, gave a wonderful teaching one day so that I go around all over the place teaching Gwen's teaching. We're talking one day about that awareness that things are just the way they are because of everything that's ever happened. It doesn't mean that we need to be, that we should in any way be passive recipients of our lives and not engage. It actually means the opposite. It means we should engage because since every cause counts and every action matters and nothing is inconsequential, that in fact the karma of the world is the result of what's happening every moment. And in fact, it mandates not only action, but impeccability. But it also mandates forgiveness. And in this way, she said, when people say to her, how are you? She says, I couldn't be better. Because we none of us ever could be in this moment. Even when we're suffering, we couldn't be better. Nobody purposely wants to suffer. If we could get out of it, we would. When we're angry and unpleasant, even mean-spirited, we couldn't be better. We don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be angry and mean-spirited and cause trouble for people. You know, we don't. I mean, it comes out of our own despair and our own uncomfortableness, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to take care of ourselves so that we feel better before we go out and interact with other people, that we should be attentive to that because, in fact, everything matters. But not to fault ourselves. In fact, I think there's a way of understanding that ends up as being It's no one's fault and it's everyone's responsibility. Which makes it possible, in fact mandates, not makes it possible, makes it imperative that we all stay awake. Everything makes a difference. We all need to stay awake. So we come here to practice staying awake, paying attention, paying attention to the ways in which we are not ready to forgive ourselves or our lives for being just what they are. 
in some ways, sometimes I think about the ideas that we had about where we were going when we first started our practice. And the truth is, it's not like I thought, it's even worse than I thought it would be that I would fly over all my experience and be untouched by it, or that I would live in a completely psychedelic mind state all the time. The worst is that I actually didn't think a lot about it. I didn't have what we call clarity of intention, because I actually didn't have much of an... It was just in, in the 70s. Everybody was meditating. It was kind of the hip thing to do. And quite by a wonderful karmic accident, um, I uh, went to a meditation retreat and met those very teachers, now my friends, who talked so straightforwardly about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the truth of suffering and the possibility of the end of suffering. And I thought to myself, these folks are telling the truth. I didn't even decide at that moment, these folks are telling the truth, I'll have to stay with them. But then, years later, when I look back and people said, how did you, well, you know, when did you make a commitment? And I said, it just happened. I couldn't not be with them. I couldn't not practice. Neither can you, actually, go back. So it doesn't matter if it's three weeks or six weeks. <laughs> None of us going to say, I changed my mind, I'm going to do my life asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the best place in the world for having your heart open. And every moment is the possibility of that third noble truth. So this is the homework that I'd like to give you. This is a mindfulness practice for everybody here tomorrow. One of the habits of mind is to, this is just because we're human beings, and uh, this is what human beings do. They're on the lookout for uh, what might be a problem. And we tend to be looking around for what's the next problem on the horizon. And say, okay, phew, now I feel okay. The pain in my knee went away. That's okay. Now I'll just go about my business. Uh Uh-oh. Here comes that hunger. Or here comes that whatever it is. Backache starting. And we spend, I think, a wee bit more, at least a wee bit, maybe a lot more time, on the lookout for problems and their solutions than noticing the in-between when we might actually be quite peaceful and happy. And I just would like us to flag those moments so that it doesn't become one minefield after another and look like dodging crises. And really to find those places in the middle where you could say to yourself, this is a moment of revelation of the third noble truth. Peace is possible. In this moment, I remember who I am. I remember my whole story. remember who I'm going home to, who I left, what's happening, what's true of me. And I'm okay. In this moment, I'm okay. Everything's okay in this moment. The world is what it is. I remember it. It's got a lot of things that have to get fixed up. But my heart is resting. My heart is not in an adversarial relationship with my life. My heart is awake and it's open. When you notice that, you say to yourself, peace is possible. This is it. This is the third noble truth. This is an insight. So let's sit a little bit.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 18, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.